0: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 42. Parabellum. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Before we begin... I've got some amazing news to announce. I'm now a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'll say more at the end of the episode for those that are interested, but the main takeaway is that I've joined a group of incredible podcasters who create incredible podcasts. Podcasts like Black Wall Street 1921, which covers the events before, during, and after the Tulsa Race Riot. Hundreds of people were killed, Thousands were made homeless, and the prosperous neighbourhood of Greenwood was devastated. It's not a pleasant story, but it is an important one, and Black Wall Street 1921 is well worth a listen. That again is Black Wall Street 1921, which you can find on all good podcast apps. Last week, we covered the expansion of the New England colonies, as New Haven, New Hampshire, and Connecticut established their first settlements. Each approached the role of the colonial government in different ways. Some were carbon copies of Massachusetts, others more akin to Plymouth Colony, while Connecticut went for a much wider franchise than any of their neighbours. Then we covered the killing of Captain John Stone, merchant, drunkard, pirate, thief, whose final voyage was a drink fuelled escapade through the European colonies of the eastern seaboard. After being ejected from Plymouth on his return journey to Virginia, he decided to sail up the Connecticut River, and kidnapped two Pequots to act as his navigators. During the height of the Pequots' war with the Dutch and the Narragansett, this was not a particularly wise decision. Pequot warriors raided his ship, freed their hostages, and killed Stone and his crew. We left off in the aftermath of this act. Stone wasn't particularly mourned among the colonists of Massachusetts Bay, and he'd died outside of their jurisdiction. But as an Englishman, the colony demanded recompense and justice from the Pequot. Deals were made, parts of them were ignored, and the English helped end the war between the Pequots and the Narragansett. This was a fragile peace. The causes of their war were still present, and the English colonists were not passive neutrals. Fears of a pan-Indian conspiracy against the Europeans were promoted by disloyal Pequot vassals, and the fertile and valuable territory the Pequot occupied was eyed hungrily by expansion-minded colonists. It would only take a spark to bring about a return to war, and a war that the English would not stay out of. That spark came in 1636. An Englishman called John Oldham set sail for Block Island alongside two Narragansett guides. The waters in the Long Island Sound are treacherous, and Block Island boasted no natural harbour. To land and to trade with the local Manises people without wrecking or running aground required experienced guides. However, this trade mission, which Oldham had taken many times before, did not go to plan. The same day, another Englishman, John Gallop, was sailing between the Connecticut River and Long Island when the wind forced him to change course. This was a fairly common occurrence on the Sound, still is today, often occurring on warm days. The colonists called it a sea turn, while the Narragansett called it a soanition. Gallop had not been expecting it, though, and could only allow his ship to be swept along. After several hours, his ship came along Block Island, and there he recognized a pinnace owned by his old friend, John Oldham. But there was no sign of Oldham. Instead, the pinnace was full of Indians, and even more were in their own boat sailing away. As Gallop approached his friend's vessel, The trespassers began to sail it away, and Gallop fired at and rammed the ship until it came to a stop. After killing almost a dozen of the intruders, Gallop was able to board the pinnace. Two Indians surrendered, and Gallop tied them up. One, the first to surrender, was kept to explain what had happened, and would be taken back to Massachusetts. The other was less fortunate. Two captives, kept together, could escape and there was no way to keep them separate on the trip home. John Winthrop recounts that the second man, while still bound hand and foot, was thrown overboard to drown. However, Gallop's son, also called John, wrote four decades later that the man was decapitated and then thrown overboard. Now Gallop confirmed his fears. Tangled in a fishing net was the mutilated body of John Oldham. His limbs were partly severed, and his head, which was only just attached, had been split almost in twain. At this point, Gallop Jr. recounts how his father swore an oath. Ah, Brother Oldham, is it thee? I am resolved to avenge thy blood. Now, that is far too dramatic and reflective of later events to be anything other than an apocryphal addition. Gallup Jr. also incorrectly describes the murderers as Pequot, though we can assume that this too was a deliberate attempt to tidy up any inconsistencies with later events. This was a bloody and gruesome scene, but it needn't have escalated. The frontier was a violent place, acts like this happened all the time. We now know that Aldham's killers were a mixture of Narragansett, Eastern Niantic, and Manissas. The leader of the raid which killed Oldham, a sachem named Audza, was executed by his overlord, the Narragansett sachem Miantonomi, within a year of the murder. Yet Oldham, Audza, and the men Gallop had killed in capturing the pinnace would soon be joined in the grave by several hundred others. At face value, it seems odd for the Manisses and the Narragansett to target Oldham, Oldham was one of their chief trading partners, to the point that he had been given an entire island by Canonicus and Myantanomi in order to keep him on their side during the war with the Pequot. It seems odd, that is, until we take into account internal Narragansett politics. As with the Pequot and the Mohegan, all was not well in the state of Narragansett. outsa Likely killed Oldham in order to hurt the economic and political strength of his overlord, though he didn't enjoy the success that Uncas enjoyed. There were also rumours that Oldham had betrayed the Narragansett and parlayed with the Pequot. This has a grain of truth, but only in that Oldham had visited the Pequot on behalf of Massachusetts in order to receive the tribute owed after the death of John Stone. His presence there could have been reported back to Narragansett territory and took on a life of its own. Andrew Lipman concludes that Oldham's death was likely a combination of internal Narragansett political maneuvering, dislike of Oldham on a personal level, the belief that he had in fact betrayed their trust, and a simple desire for the wealthy Englishman's goods. So, how did this murder? contrived and executed by the enemies of the Pequot, lead to war against the Pequot. Contemporaries knew who the killers of Oldham were, but it was a needle of truth in a haystack of misinformation. In Gallup Jr.'s account, the survivor immediately confessed after seeing his compatriot beheaded, because of course he would. The now headless man was his sachem, And he had orchestrated the raid against Oldham alone. Yet, this same man in Winthrop's account describes a pan Narragansett conspiracy, which had acted on rumours that Oldham had traded with the Pequots. In fact, the informant blamed almost everyone he could, including two Narragansett envoys that were in Boston at the time. This all seems more like the panicked attempt of a man in fear for his life, which you know, was a justified fear. Still, it didn't help convince the colonial leadership that their allies had, indeed, killed their strongest trading partner and risked alienating the colonies. As Lipman concisely puts it, these discrepancies make all claims by this man suspect, and illustrate how a constant cycle of misinformation drove all stages of the Oldham Affair. It's also worth remembering that this was occurring at the same time as the Antinomian Controversy. Massachusetts was facing division internally, which only heightened tensions and suspicions. Similarly, it's debated how much the Antinomian Controversy escalated due to these external factors fears that one side or another was going to make a deal with external enemies. In the immediate aftermath, the Narragansett sought and delivered. Retribution for Oldham's death. Miantonomi sent 200 warriors to Block Island, and as I've already mentioned, he executed Owdsir for the raid. Most of the goods stolen from Oldham's ship were returned to Massachusetts. His ship, which had been left adrift by Gallop, was recovered intact and returned to the colony. The Narragansett had put their house in order and returned most of Oldham's valuables. Perhaps Myantanomi hoped that this would appease the English and prevent a war. But the war that came didn't target his people. Instead, it was the Pequots who were punished for Oldham's death. Now again, they hadn't had anything to do with it, but they had admitted their involvement in the killing of John Stone. The deaths of Oldham and of Stone began to be conflated, It didn't help that some of Oldham's murderers found refuge among the Pequots, and they were refusing to hand them over. This was the Cassus Belli Massachusetts needed. I'll use one final quote from Lipman, which lays all of this out. Scholars have detailed the ways that the English intentionally conflated the murders of Oldham and Stone, and then scapegoated vilified and provoked the Pequots, drawing them into a war that featured terrifying acts of collective punishment. Examining Aldham's murder serves as a reminder that the English chose to go to war with the Pequots, just as they easily could have chosen to go to war with the Narragansetts. But the fact that the Puritans had to choose also demonstrates their comparative weakness. Colonists could not risk a war with two sizeable Indian powers at the same time, and it did not make sense to pick a fight with the smaller of the two. The Pequots had more villages, more wampum, more corn, and more enemies than the Narragansett, and they sat in a more strategic location at the mouth of Long Island Sound and near the mouth of the Connecticut, making them a particularly tempting target. War with the Pequots would help the English extinguish the Dutch West India Company's easterly claims in a way that war with the Narragansetts would not. To pull off this cynical conquest, Puritans willingly forgot the true details of Oldham's murder while feigning anger over the death of the hated drunkard and pirate John Stone. In other words, the English could have, with more justification, gone to war with the Narragansetts, but a war with the Pequots was more strategically and economically valuable. And so a war with the Pequots they would have. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let me recommend another history podcast on the Airwave Network. The Explorers Podcast. Friend of the show Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands across deserts and oceans as he covers the life and times of history’s greatest explorers. Alongside Magellan, Drake, Lewis, and/or Clark, he also covers lesser-known figures. I’ve particularly enjoyed his recent series on Freya Stark, someone I’d never heard of, but whose life is fascinating. Her story combines her life as a woman during the early 20th century. European Empire building in the Middle East in the aftermath of the First World War, and the legacy of the medieval assassins, the scourge of Saladin, Crusading Kings, and the Mongols. Each Explorer Matt covers gets as much time as their story needs. Sometimes this means it's a one-off episode, other times it's hours of engaging narrative. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or go to explorerspodcast.com to find out more. In August 1636, ninety men under the command of John Endicott, who at this point was an assistant of the General Court, travelled to Block Island on two pinnaces. Theirs was a punitive expedition. Winthrop recorded that their commission was to, quote, put to death the men of Block Island, but to spare the women and children and to bring them away, and to take possession of the island and from thence to go to the Pequods, the Pequots, to demand the murderers of Captain Stone and the other English, and one thousand fathom of wampum for damages, and some of their children as hostages, which, if they should refuse, they were to obtain it by force. Winthrop makes a point of saying that this expedition was made up of volunteers. No one was conscripted to take part. When the punitive expedition arrived on the coast of Block Island, a group of forty menaces shot at them with arrows, but the men were armored, and there were few injuries. The English fired back, injuring some, but Winthrop explains that the wounded were carried when the Indians fled. The force marched across the island, searching for them for more than two days, but they had vanished into the forest. The Block Islanders had villages and fields of corn, which were impossible to hide, and the English burnt it all before departing for the mainland. The Menisses on Block Island had lost their homes, and any supplies they couldn't hide or carry. But their men still lived, and their women and children hadn't been enslaved. The expedition, its first mission a failure, then sailed to the Connecticut River to begin the second part of its commission. They arrived at Fort Saybrook, where they informed Lieutenant Gardiner of why they, a heavily armed and armoured contingent of almost a hundred men, were suddenly on his doorstep. Endicott explained his charge, and Gardiner was not happy. From his account of proceedings, Suddenly after came Captain Endicott, Captain Turner, and Captain Underhill, with a company of soldiers, well fitted, to Saybrook and made that place their rendezvous, or seat of war, and that to my great grief, for, said I, you come hither to raise these wasps about my ears, then you will take wing and flee away. In other words, you mean you're going to start a war and then disappear back to Boston? Saybrook would be hung out to dry, but at least it was a fort. It had been meant to be the strongest fort in the Americas, though most of the hardware for this hadn't arrived. It was still defensible. The same couldn't be said of all the fledgling towns further up the Connecticut River, the towns we talked about last week. If Endicott's attempt to humble the Pequot wasn't successful, and he just antagonised them, the lives of all the English in Connecticut would suddenly become much more difficult and for some, much shorter. Still, some guides from Saybrook joined the expedition as it sailed up the river to the nearest Pequot settlement. Gardiner's account states that he sent the men to make sure that, if his prediction was right and the English started a war, his men could at least seize the Pequot crops in preparation for a siege. Initially, The Pequots watched their progress with curiosity and don't appear to have thought this was a military expedition. Instead, they called out, asking if they were here to trade. On orders from their officers, the English kept silent. Naturally, the Pequots were somewhat concerned about a large group of armed men sailing into their territory without explaining why they were there. Now they called out to ask. Lundley, if they were there to fight. As the sun went down, the expedition anchored off the settlement, which Winthrop names Pequot Harbour. The Pequot lit fires on both sides of the river, still unsure why the English were there. At daybreak, a messenger sailed out to greet their unexpected guest and ask, why are you here? Endicott explained that he was here to speak to the Pequot Sachems, and what followed was an extended exercise in delay. The messenger went back and forth between the village and the English who landed their men over the course of the day. each time the messenger came with a new excuse. Neither of the sachems were there; they had gone to Long Island. When Endicott insisted that he knew they were in the village. The messenger returned to say, "Oh, yes, turns out one of the sachems is here." he's establishing a committee to identify the murderers right now. Back and forth this went, and the whole time, the English landing party was surrounded by more and more Pequot, armed with bows and whatever guns they had. Winthrop recounts that the English faced about 300 warriors, and things were getting tense. After yet another delay, Endicott lost his patience. He announced to the messenger, and to the crowd, his full list of demands. The spillers of English blood would be handed over, as were tribute and hostages. If these terms were not met, well, that's what the heavily armed and armoured militia was for. At this, the messenger agreed to take the English to the sachem, if only they disarmed. He promised that the Pequot would similarly disarm, and then everything could be worked out. The Pequot seemed to have been genuinely confused about why the English were there, because of course they were. The stone murder was years past at this point, and besides, that had been resolved as far as the Pequot were concerned. They hadn't had anything to do with the Oldham death, so perhaps this was a genuine offer and violence could have been avoided. But we'll never know, because Endicott didn't think it was a genuine offer, he believed it was yet another ruse, another way of stalling and buying time. As Winthrop accounts, When the general saw they did but dally to gain time, he bade them be gone and shift for themselves, for they had dared the English to come fight with them, and now they were come for that purpose. Thereupon, they all withdrew. Winthrop details how some of the English wanted to shoot at the departing Pequot and were only prevented by Endicott. After giving them some distance, he ordered the force to march after them, expecting the Pequots to use this time to form up and prepare for a proper battle. Instead, facing the firepower and armour of almost a hundred militiamen, the Pequots did no such thing they retreated into cover, and as the English formed up and prepared for battle, they laughed at them. This wounded the English pride, but at least these wounds weren't physical, because the Pequot also shot at them with bow and musket. There were several injuries, and two Englishmen were killed, while the Pequot peppered them with missiles, Realising that the Pequot were not cooperating with his idea of what a battle was meant to be, Endicott ordered the Pequot village to be put to the torch. Tents and fields were burnt to ash, but just like on Block Island, the Indians stayed out of the way and out of harm. The English retired to their ships for the night, and the following day did the same on the other side of the river. Then Endicott's punitive expedition sailed away. Having punished the hell out of some tents, but little else, Gardiner recalls how his men were almost left behind after loading the ships with corn and were chased by the Pequot. The mission had failed on multiple levels. Endicott had been sent to capture the killers of John Stone and to take hostages for the Pequot's good behaviour and to receive substantial tribute in wampum and other valuables. Small flotilla sailed away with none of that. The same day, as the expedition left a smouldering Pequot harbour, Saybrook's Lieutenant Gardner feared the worst and ordered five men to guard Saybrook's cornfield to man a stronghouse. They were to stay put while a ship arrived to harvest the crops. Instead, three of those men decided to go hunting for birds. Only one man made it back, bleeding from his leg. The group had been left alone as they hunted, but on their way back they had been ambushed. The survivor had narrowly escaped with his life and had been shot in the leg for his troubles. His two compatriots were captured and, judging by their screams, tortured to death. When the survivors sailed away the next day, they watched as Indians emerged from the forest and burned the stronghouse and whatever crops were left in the fields. The next day, a foraging party to a nearby island was ambushed as they collected hay, warriors emerging from the long grass. Three men were killed outright, another captured and burnt alive. Another day, Gardiner led a party out to clear the land around Saybrook Fort of the reeds and the bushes. As they began burning... Several Indians emerged from the swamp. Some of the English broke and ran, and two were shot by Indians. The other English, including Gardiner, managed to make it back to the fort, despite the best efforts of the enemy. Gardiner himself was wounded in the thigh, two other men were wounded, and two more killed. When Gardiner saw the cowards that left us, I resolved to let them draw lots which of them should be hanged and he only relented when others interceded on their behalf. After his wound healed, Gardner led another foraging expedition, and recovered some of the muskets which had been dropped by those who routed. He also found the body of one of his men, killed by an arrow which had embedded itself in the man's rib. Gardner removed the rib, cleaned the bone with the arrowhead still inside it, and sent it to Massachusetts. The Bay colonists had boasted that native weaponry was weak and ineffectual. This man would certainly disagree, if he'd been able to. As Gardiner had feared, the Pequot, for this is who had been attacking him, had not been humbled, but provoked. Fort Saybrook was now under siege. Begun, the Pequot War had. Next week, we will finish this season of the podcast with the events of this war, before we return the narrative to Europe to begin a new season of episodes on the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. As I said at the start of today's episode, I've been invited to join the Agora Podcast Network. I've listened to Agora Podcasts since before they were Agora Podcasts, and it's not an exaggeration to say this is something I've hoped for since I started podcasting four years ago. For now this won't mean any changes. I'm still with recorded history, and so the back end is remaining the same. No changes to the RSS feed, you won't need to do anything to keep listening. As always, if that changes, I will let you know either through the podcast or on social media. In other admin news, I'd also like to issue a correction. Last week I referred to the modern state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, but I missed off the plantations part. It still keeps the name from its earliest years. Even after its evolution from colony to state, thank you to my Earl of Carlisle, Ian Lester, for getting in touch. One final thing: the British Podcast Awards has a Listener's Choice Award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com/vote, you can vote for your favorite podcast. If that happens to be Pax Britannica, thank you very much. If not, that's fine too. The nominees for the other awards are all fantastic, I'm sure, but most of them are backed by large corporations or institutions, so it'd be great if one of the smaller podcasts, one of the independent ones, if a passion project got some recognition. Votings open until the 6th of July 2020. I'll put a link in the description of this episode, and they'll be announced on Saturday the 11th of July. I'd like to thank my House of Lords, the King's favourite, Andrew Shoemaker, the Royal Huntsman, executed today, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Marquess of Hereford, Christopher Remo, and the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz. You can join their ranks and receive an ad-free RSS feed by going to patreon.com slash Thanks to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast.